The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. What can I say about this week's podcast? I sit down with Ray Dalio of Bridgewater Associates, and you have to hear the whole thing. I can't even preface it by describing it. He's Ray Dalio. It's awesome. I will share a quick story about the first time I met Ray. I had been reading um, various things he had been posted, an early version of of principles, and I loved his idea of radical transparency and failure, learning from failure, error, mistakes, failures. They are an opportunity to learn, and we should not ignore our mistakes, but we should own them and learn from them. And And because of that, I started doing my annual Mia Culpas. I've been doing it for about a decade. So I wanted, when there was an event, I wanted the opportunity to uh, say thank you to him. I couldn't get anywhere near the guy after he spoke. There were a million institutional salespeople all over him. I step outside, and I'm just standing there kind of fuming, and I see the scrum coming towards me. It's Ray and his assistant and all these salespeople, and it was sort of like an Andy Cap cartoon with these guys all trying to get in there. Eventually, he is the scrum works its way, so he's like two feet from me. And I just looked up and said, hey, Ray, I don't have a business card for you. I just wanted to say thank you. And he kind of swiveled around and looked at me. Who are you? I introduced myself and I tell him, hey, because of your uh, concept of, of owning mistakes and the value of failure, I started posting my mea culpas publicly. Here's where I screwed up. Here's what I learned. And we just chatted for two or three minutes and you could feel the white hot hate of all these salespeople who were looking for... Uh, entree for a commission business with Bridgewater, and I'm just chit-chatting and saying thank you. So he and his assistant get in the car with a giant stack of papers and folders and stuff you know they're throwing out immediately. Um, and I basically said, gee, I have to sit down and have a longer conversation with that guy. He's pretty fascinating. Well, here it is almost a decade later. With no further ado, my conversation with Ray Dalio. My guest this week requires little in the way of introduction from me. His name is Ray Dalio, and he is the founder, chairman, and outgoing CEO of Bridgewater Associates, the world's largest hedge fund managing over $160 billion in assets for institutional clients. Ray continues to work as chief investment officer there. According to Fortune, Bridgewater is the fifth most important private company in the United States. They have made more money for their clients than any other fund in history. His new book, Principles, is a New York Times bestseller. Ray Dalio, welcome to Bloomberg. Thanks. Nice to be here. I have been looking forward to this conversation for so long. Let's jump right in with Bridgewater. It just celebrated its 40th anniversary. How has the company's evolution surprised you since you first launched the firm in the 1970s. Well, it surprised me any, every 
day every different which way. I mean, I don't know how to summarize it. Uh, you know, I started it out of a two-bedroom apartment mm-hmm. and with a guy I played rugby with. And I was just playing my game, and I just never imagined that it would be anything like this. So you go through these different phases, you know. First phase is you have to take care of everything. You have to hire people. You hire your pals. Then you realize that you have to manage people, and then you have to, you know, I had to get the file cabinets myself and all that. Then you get people who get the file cabinets, and then you have to manage them. It, you know, it goes through all of its phases, and now um, – I'm at the wonderful phase of being able to transition out of the management and make other people successful. So I'm now at a phase in my life, which I'm describing as entering the third phase of my life, of transitioning so that I'm making other people successful. So every phase is different, you know, lots of surprises. So let me tell you what surprised me in Principles, in the first part of the book that describes your history. You had roles in the creation of each of the following products— TIPS, the Inflation Protected Treasury Bonds, U.S. Dollar Futures Index, Risk Parity, China's Stock Market, and Chicken McNuggets. Let's discuss each of those, but I have to start with the outlier. Chicken McNuggets, what was your role within Chicken McNuggets? Well, I, you know, I was trading commodities, and <clears throat> when I say trading commodities— you know, down at a very basic level of understanding, you know, how many pounds of feed went into a chicken or beef uh, and how that would grow. I liked it because it was very mechanical and there was not, no greater fool theory. You know, the value right. of the meat was whatever it sold for at the counter. And at the t- that time, I had institutional clients who were, uh, you know, he- hedging. And McDonald's was a client of mine, and some chicken producers were clients of mine. Lane processing? Lane is that processing, right? yeah. And um, McDonald's wanted to, they came up with the idea of the chicken McNugget. But the big problem that they had at the time is there was a lot of volatility in prices in chicken prices, mostly because there was grain prices. A chick is a tiny thing. It doesn't cost much, but it's all the grain. Mm -hmm. And so they were worried about you put out uh, these at a fixed price on a menu, and then the price volatility could kill them. So they wanted to buy chicken at a fixed price. But nobody produced chicken at a fixed price because there was no chicken futures market. So I went to the lane processing, and I said, would you like to do this? And I calculated how they could essentially hedge their cost by buying corn and soy meal futures. And then they locked in the price for chicken McNuggets. And I loved really commodities then. I love that story. It's so fascinating how a little bit of financial engineering, and lo and behold, you have a consistent price for chicken McNuggets. It was cool. Yeah. yeah. And you did um, Dollar Futures Index. Was that with uh, Paul Tudor Jones? Yeah, yep, yep, right? yep. Volatility in the dollar. And then he figured, let's put together a basket. And uh, so we put together a basket. We designed it. How would it work? We did the same thing with the CRB futures. It's engineering. You've got to understand engineering. You have to understand the mechanics. It's a fair, basic fundamental thing, whatever you're doing. So we understood a lot about engineering, and I put together those products. Yeah. What about your role in the development of China's equity markets? Well, yeah, I went to there. At, I started going 1984 to China, and... Uh, because not not for business or anything, because it was an interesting place. Um, and as a matter of fact, the company that invited me, Citic, was the only company in China that was allowed to deal with the outside world. Wow. They called it a window company. Anyway, as they started to, in 1989, start to think about we need financial markets, 
there were seven people who were in a room and that it was sort of a dingy hotel room and they had to start to think about the markets and I got to know them and we started to think about how they would develop a stock market, a bond market and so on. So I got to be a participant in that and that was a blast. These people have become, you know, lifelong friends. So, you know, since that time, 1989 until now, uh, we've been friends, and then they've gone on to develop the fabulous financial markets that are there, and I'm still there, so it's great. You know, what I like is I like meaningful work and meaningful relationships. I like work that I can get my head into, and I'm having an impact. That's mm-hmm. great. And I love the meaningful relationships. If you could do this with people you like over a period of time, that's even the greatest reward. That phrase, meaningful work and meaningful relationships, comes up in principles over and over not just in the history, but in the life principles part, and it seems to be applied in the work principles part. Tell us what led you to those two elements. Well, look, I want it. I mean, personally, I want the meaningful work that I get excited about to be on a mission. And then I love the meaningful relationships. It's as much important to me as whatever business success. And if you put those two things together, being on a mission with people who you love and that great mission, it's um, double rewards. And then it also uh, reinforces each other. Because if if you're doing the meaningful work and you have the meaningful relationships, you can be tough with each other and you... Um, you know, you get the devotion. The people who uh, work at Bridgewater, a lot of them, they work there for a long time. They would never think of working anywhere else because it's like an extended family. You have to understand that money as a reward uh, is not a very satisfying reward, really, in comparison to the meaningful relationships. If you do, studies have been done on happiness, right? Mm-hmm. And they said there's very little correlation between the amount of money that you have past a certain basic point. But once the basis are covered, there's a diminishing return. Not much can. correlation. Right. The number one thing in source of happiness across countries, everywhere, is a sense of community. So if you have both of those things, great rewards. So I wanted those meaningful work and meaningful relationships. And then, in order to have those, I wanted to be radically truthful and radically transparent with each other. Because if I'm going to have a a relationship with you or the people around me, I need to have an idea meritocracy Mm -hmm. in which we are radically truthful and radically transparent. And that's how the culture began, and that's how what the culture is. You know, in a nutshell... The culture is an idea meritocracy. In other words, the best ideas win out, uh, in which we're going for meaningful work and meaningful relationships through being radically truthful and radically transparent. And that's been the key to the success. Let's talk a little bit about mistakes. You describe mistakes as opportunities to learn and improve, saying the key to success in life is learning how to fail well. Discuss. Well, I think in order to be successful, you have to do five things, basically. First, you have to know what your goals, your dreams are. And on the way to going after those goals and dreams, you're going to encounter your failures and your mistakes. A lot of people think that that's painful. Uh, Those are your learning opportunities. So I have a saying, pain plus reflection equals progress. In other words, reflect. What would you have done differently? So... First step, goals. Second step, problems on the way to goals, not tolerating them. Third step, 
you have to diagnose those problems to get at the root causes. Many of those times, the root causes is you, how you're handling it. Mm -hmm. So you've got to learn a lesson. Most people learn lessons through painful mistakes. So I associate painful mistakes with learning, okay? So first, goals, problems, then diagnose those problems to the root cause. Make a design of what you're going to do differently in the future when the next one comes along. Those are the principles. I wrote down those principles. That's what the book is mostly about, this collection of principles. So number four, design ways of getting around them. Number five, do those things, push through the results. You keep doing this over and over and over again, you're going to be successful. I have another um, little formula that basically means that if you have your dreams plus you embrace reality and you learn from reality, your painful realities, Mm -hmm. and you have enough determination so you keep learning, you will inevitably have a successful life. So those are the, that's what I mean. The value in learning is from mistakes because mistakes cues the fact that you learn something, that, that something is wrong, but you need quality reflection. And when I start, when I did this over a period of time, my whole attitude started to change. I began to view mistakes, uh, problems, failures, I began to view them as puzzles. That They were curious to me. And if I could solve the puzzle, I would get a gem. And the gem I would get would be a lesson or a principle of what I would do differently in the future. And I wrote that down. So a big thing for me, well, for, I don't know, 25 years, is to write down the, my principles. Every time I'm making a decision, writing down those principles. And then I found out I can convert those principles to decision rules, and I could have the computer help me make those decisions because it would reflect, and that changed my life. So one of the things you wrote that really stood out to me about a related topic, you, you said you fear boredom and mediocrity more than failure, and the line was, great is better than terrible, but terrible is better than mediocre. Is that related to this idea well, of making yeah. mistakes, or is it really just, I don't want to be bored, I want meaningful work? Well, I'd say it's probably half and half. I mean, in other words, I, I want flavor in my life, mm-hmm. right? You know? And I don't mind getting banged up a little bit on the way to learning. And I love learning. I love the evolution. So boredom is the thing that is the worst for me. So pain, I can, you know, I can deal with some pain. I find even the benefit of the pain. It's become almost like failure equals success. Now, that sounds like a weird thing. There's failure, a little process in the middle. Right. Failure equals success. But because I've gotten re-cued, reprogrammed, essentially, what that failure means is failure means learning. And that's exciting to me. And then it produces success. And that's exciting to me. And that changing my instinctual reaction, my knee-jerk reaction to failure gives me a more exciting life and gives me a more successful life. So let's talk a little bit about that pain and that radical transparency. You write about a memo that your staff gave you about, quote, raise intractable people problem. And I'll spare the details. It's in the book. But they really call you out. They really take you to task for the way you're interacting with staff, how did this peer review affect you? What did this do to impact that 
philosophy that you've developed. Well, I, I always I always really wanted that that kind of feedback because I wanted to work with independent thinkers who would speak up just like I could, radically straightforward. But as the company got to get a little bit bigger, and I think it was probably like maybe we had 85 people or so then, and that straightforwardness uh, was making people feel uncomfortable. bad. Uh, uncomfortable. And I didn't know that. So they call me out to dinner, and they um, and they give me this memo, and they explain to me that I'm having this effect of, I don't know, demoralizing people, upsetting people. And I didn't want to have that effect. Like, these are the meaningful relationships I wanted to have it. So it paused me um, to make me think, well, what do I do? That's an intractable problem. Am I going to not be as straightforward with them? Can't they be straightforward with me? And how am I going to change it? That- Let me interrupt you a sec. You're the boss. How, these people who are feeling, wow, Ray really ripped me a new one today. Did you really feel they can come up to you and say, hey, Ray, even though you're the founder and boss here, here's what you're doing wrong and you better cut it out? Well, in the markets and as an entrepreneur, you've got to bet against the consensus and be right. Otherwise, you're not adding value. In the markets, the consensus is built into the price and you've got to bet against it and be right. You have to be an independent thinker. And you're not sure that you're going to be right. So for always, uh, you know, I've gotten my head handed to me enough times that I'm scared about being wrong. And as a result of that, I want to work with independent thinkers. These are the people I respect who can then argue back and forth and to try to raise our probabilities of being right. So that's part of the process, right? And so um, that that type of straightforwardness um, is not... uh, easy for people. But that's the way I've always operated. That's the way we've operated and we've institutionalized operating that way. But at the time, some people found really that uncomfortable. Um, So then we go back. Um, I was, you know, in a position where I didn't want to do that. And and I and I didn't also not want I didn't want to stop doing it. Mm -hmm. So what should I do? So I thought I reflected on that. And I, and I came up with the idea of, let me just sit down with the people and decide how are we going to be with each other. For example, if I have critical thoughts about you, should I tell you or should I hold them to myself? If you've got critical thoughts about me, should you tell me or should you hold them to yourself? It, it, everybody intellectually really says, no, no, you want to know about those things, right? But emotionally, emotionally then they don't. Uh, they don't like it, right? And what we discovered really is the two U's. In everybody, there are two U's. There's this intellectual, thoughtful you that would like to make decisions a certain way, and then there's an emotional, subliminal you that you don't even understand very well, and it's having a conflict. And so by making it very clear with each other, we could establish ways of being with each other. That really led me to write down a lot of my work principles. In other words, okay, how are we going to be with each other? I wrote those down in words. We put those together, and then we moved forward. So we had that. With that, we established what our unusual uh, way of our operating, our unusual culture was, with this thoughtful disagreement, this idea of meritocracy, and it was like a contract. And people realized that the struggling wasn't between me and them, really, as much as it was between them and them. Their right. their emotional and their intellectual, right. and that changed everything. So the writing down the principles changed everything, and the realization of, that everybody has those struggles between their thoughtfulness and what they want and their emotional self 
and then you work on getting through that. And we found that typically it takes about 18 months to get to a, a place of you know, practicing this and getting comfortable with it. In order to have an idea of meritocracy, you have to do three things. First, you have to put your honest thoughts on the table for everybody to see. No and holding other, back. No holding back. Everybody And everybody puts them on the table. Great. Okay, a lot of people won't do that, but when you get practiced, you don't want to do it any other way. So you put your honest thoughts on the table. Second thing is you have to know the art of thoughtful disagreement. The art of thoughtful disagreement. That's a challenge. Right. In other words, to view that as a, a curiosity, that you also might be wrong. If there's disagreement, how do you know the wrong party isn't you? So to separate oneself from one's opinions and to be able to have a quality back and forth motivated by curiosity and the fear of being wrong so that you can take in and learn, that understanding the art of thoughtful disagreement is invaluable. So you, so that's the second thing. Put your honest thoughts on the tables the first. Um, have the, understand the art of th- thoughtful disagreement. We have protocols about how to do that. And then at the end of the day, when there's um, you have to make a decision and you still have disagreements, to have protocols to get up around those disagreements that you consider to be fair. I'd say this is uh, essential for me in all my relationships. So it would be relationships with family, with friends, um, you know, I need them to be straightforward with me. I got to be straightforward with them. Mm-hmm. We have to know how to have thoughtful disagreement. And then everybody in any relationship has to have protocols for getting around their disagreements if they still remain. If you and your wife are having a disagreement on something, you still have to have a protocol for getting around it. So by organizing that and making it clear, we were able to have this idea of meritocracy. And everybody believes the idea of meritocracy is, is then fair. Imagine how it is different at every other place. You know, the boss tells you what it is. And that's people, it is. Bottle, people bottle it up. Okay. They think, oh, he's making a mistake. He would benefit from having that feedback, but they have to bottle it up, with, which frustrates them. Therefore, they can't have a real ownership mentality in the organization that they're with, and it undermines their relationship. That straightforwardness has been fantastic in creating better work and better relationships. So that's been the secret sauce. So let me do a little radical transparency with you. In the book, you discuss two things. We discuss the people problem and the social issues, and you talk about bipolar running in the family. And as I read those two in sequence, I immediately said, hey, I wonder if Ray is a little bit on the spectrum himself. So let me ask you, have you ever considered you're an independent thinker, your perspectives are unique, you're very different from the way the average person in finance operates? Have you ever thought, hey, maybe I'm a little uh, little different? Well, no, but... I, look, I can, I'm sure I'm a little different. Than, you know, who knows? And I'm probably crazy in a bunch of different ways. I've never been. Uh, nobody said that, but uh, you know, like who knows? We all have different spectrums. The thing I learned about it is there's always a range of thinking. So think of it as a thinking spectrum. Okay. And uh, I don't know where I am on that thinking spectrum, but some people, for example, will see big picture. Some people will see detail. Some people are creative. Some people are reliable. The, um, one of the things we've learned here is that everybody th- sees things differently, like seeing on a spectrum of, of seeing. And that knowing how one thinks um, 
I tend to be more of a big picture thinker. Right. I tend to be more of an you know, rea- original thinker, that kind of thing. But in terms of my reliability, like I have low reliability, whatever, to know those things and then to have the individuals um, recognize them and then put together your teams well because you need to do it all. Is, words, is this what led you guys to doing the Briggs-Myers personality uh, tests on everybody and making sure the teams all had – each of those boxes checked off? Yeah, and, and a lot of tests and a lot of uh, collecting data. Like people come in there and they really do want to know what their strengths and weaknesses are because, like, you know, it, knowing a weakness, do you want to know a weakness? You know, that's one of those emotional intellectual questions. Yeah. Emotionally, a lot of people don't. Intellectually, if you know your weakness, you can either d- convert it to a strength somehow or you can compensate for it by put working with somebody who's got who's strong where you're weak. So knowing your weakness is the key to success. And also, from an employer's point of view, what you want to do is you want to know what their weaknesses are and what their strengths are so you put them in the right role. People tippy-toe around this stuff. And in our, you know, where we are, uh, people want to get into it and work it out. And so, yeah, tests, personality tests, give you a real sense of what your preferences are and how you approach your thinking. They've been very ha- helpful. But all the data we collect, you know, like every meeting of every day, we have a tool called the Dot Collector. If anybody wants to see it, if, if you really want to understand all this, in 16 minutes, it's on a TED Talk. Uh, go on a TED Talk. I gave it uh, there. I'll link to that. I'll make sure everyone yeah, has access and, and, to that. And it gives you – you're going to see a device in which uh, people are putting in what they think uh, um, during a meeting. Well, all meetings are like this. And you'll see how they think differently. It lights up in different colors. And then it explores – why is that thinking different, which creates a self-discovery and creates idea meritocratic uh, decision making. So it's been evolved to that and it's, you know, it's been invaluable. Let's talk a little bit about the idea of being a hyper realist. You wrote, understand how reality works, then learn how to deal with it. Isn't that what everybody's supposed to do? Most people I, I, I don't think do. I think people, a lot of people, um, feel bad about reality, feel sorry that uh, some realities are happening to them, feel things are uh, unfair. Um, They don't react to harsh realities well. They don't, instead, you can instead say, reality is the thing I have to deal with and I have to be clever and understand how does reality work and how do I deal with it effectively. And those two different mindsets mm-hmm. are um, are enormous because if you own that reality is reality, you know that, that that's what you have to deal with, and that you have to find the way of dealing with it successfully, then it changes your whole attitude and your whole path really uh, to being successful. So let's talk a little bit about a change in path that reality seems to have led led you towards. You transitioned at work from. I'm right to to what I would describe as next level thinking. How can I know if I'm right? Explain that transition. Oh yeah, it was um, in 1980, 81. Um, I had calculated that uh, foreign countries uh, borrowed enough money that they couldn't pay back American banks, and that there was going to be a big banking crisis. Mm-hmm. I did the numbers, and um, that at that time that was extremely controversial view. I said we're going to have a big debt crisis. 
And uh, then in August, uh, Mexico defaulted on its debt. Right. And, and so I figured we're going to have a big economic crisis. And so I was asked to appear on Wall Street Week and explain it. I was asked to testify to Congress and so on. Uh, this big economic crisis, bear market in stocks and everything. Uh, August 1982, Mexico defaults, and here I am, and I'm getting all that attention. I was so wrong. That was that was the exact bottom in the stock market, August 1982. And, and you were on Rukeyser basically forecasting a depression. Right. I couldn't have been more wrong, right? And I lost money in the markets. I... Uh, uh, I was uh, had to let everybody in my company go. It was down to me. I was so broke I had to borrow four thousand dollars from my dad to t- help take care of my family. Okay, that was one of the most painful experiences in my life, but it was one of the most valuable experiences of my life because it changed my approach to decision making. In other words, like you say, it shifted my perspective from thinking I'm right to asking myself. How do I know I'm right? And it gave me the humility that I needed to balance with my audacity. And that change in approach re- resulted in you know some big decision-making. Would I go back to another job? Would I stay out there? And then how would I do things differently in the future? And the first thing, most important thing, was to find the smartest people I know who would disagree with me, to understand their thinking, to have that thoughtful disagreement. That's part of your four-step process, right? Yeah. Find smart people, know when not to have an opinion. That's a fascinating statement. When should you not have an opinion? Well, a lot of times, right? <laughs> when I mean, opinions, particularly in, a, in any, is a zero-sum game, but so many have, people have opinions that they're attached to, right. and, and they don't know whether they're they're right, and and that bias is killing them. I think one of the greatest tragedies of mankind is people stupidly holding on to opinions that could be wrong, that they could so easily put out there and stress test. And that emotional attachment to these opinions is one of those things where instead you could just say, let me get the best thinking I can have. It doesn't even have to come from me. Why oh, does it have to come from you? But that's a huge ego fail if, oh, my God, I'm wrong. I have to go to someone else. Isn't that how people often operate? Right, and that's screwed up. Right, You have two basic barriers. You have your ego barrier and your blind spot barrier. Like, do you want to be right or do you want to be? You want to take your lousy opinion and, and be attached to it being right? Like, I want to be right. I don't care where it comes from just as long as I'm right. That works better. And, then, and so that ego barrier is terrible. And then there's the blind spot barrier. Even people who don't um, have, you know, uh, the ego of being attachment to being right, th- see things differently. The and, unknown unknown, so to speak. Yeah, well, right. Um, this range, this spectrum that you're talking about. Somebody sees something creatively. Somebody sees detail. Some we all see things differently, and to be and so you can't see it all. The big picture person may not be able to see the details, or the detail person can't see the big picture. If you can light up all those different ways of uh, thinking and and you can bring that to bear, you're going to make much better decisions. So that's one of the reasons that great collective decision-making is much more powerful than just individual opinionated thinking. Sure, of course. You're you're bringing in all the 
uh, advantages of the group and you're limiting the the problems of the individual. We and that raises your probabilities of being right. So now you mentioned four steps. So I want to get to the step three and four, which are the principles and upside risk versus downside risk. Right. So okay. So some of the other things that I learned about is how you know risk and go, goes with rewards. But how am I going to change the ratio of risk to rewards? Mm-hmm. Right. And I spent a lot more time with financial engineering of understanding how to use correlations and certain ways of really radically improving the ratio of return to risk. So it's explained in there and what I call the holy grail of investing. It's, um, you know, that was there. And then I also learned um, that everything that happened, that happens practically has happened before for Mm -hmm. the most part. And that the things that surprised me were the things that just happened happened in my lifetime before, but they but they happened before. Like 1971, the first time I had a breakdown of the currency system. Uh-huh. Okay, and I I I it was first time in my lifetime that it happened. But I looked in history; it happened many times before. So to, so I learned that I needed to make my rules timeless and universal. In other words, that I would run them back through the Great Depression, through the Weimar Republic, see how those rules would work. And if they wouldn't have worked well in certain periods, then I had to explain why they would work in those periods because there were reasons for that. So these are the things that came out of my reflections as a result of, you know, that 1982 uh, painful experience. It's such a great example that if you Pain plus reflection equals progress. If you really reflect the most and you look at how reality works and you think, what should you do differently? That's where the power of growth comes from. So there's one other thing in the principles at work section I have to talk to you about because I just was so tickled by it. You spend almost five pages on how to run a meeting effectively. So what if that raises two issues. You obviously think, Meetings are important and a significant part of getting work done as a group. But it made me wonder, what were the meetings like in the early days of Bridgewater? Was it was it anarchy that led you to this sort of insight? Or, or what motivated a lot of thought about making meetings more productive? Well, um, the, look, meetings are an important thing. And m- meetings means that there's a collection of people who are in the room and they're ideally leading to some sort of decision, okay? You have to say, how are you going to be with each other in order to make decisions, right? Sure. In other words, you can go around the table. I was, I'd go around the table, and then there was not much attention paid to, you know, who knows exactly what, mm-hmm. right? You know, you know, what do you think, Harry? What do you think, ha- uh, Sally? And maybe they're not good at it, and maybe they're good at it. Uh, at, so um, that's a problem. Or you can have autocratic decision-making. You know, the, the autocratic decision-making means the boss kind of makes the decision and then then you sort of decide and everybody walks out. I wanted to have believability-weighted decision-making. Okay, believability-weighted decision-making is, um, let's see, shall I explain it quickly or not? Um, believability-weighted decision-making, imagine if you knew um, the probability of each person making a high-quality right. decision. And then you decided um, that would be taken into consideration. And when you're making the decision, you can actually have believability-weighted voting to make a decision so that you put the weight more heavily on those who have 
uh, greater abilities to make those types of decisions. And at the same time, while you're having this open-minded discussion, uh-huh. and at the same time, knowing what people know and knowing what they don't know and being clear about that in terms of that decision-making. So that was a very, very important concept for me. And uh, then we wanted to build that out, uh, you know, like how do we have believability weighted decisions? You use that currently at Bridgewater? Oh, yeah, every, you, every, every meeting. Ten every, people are sitting around a conference table and their expertise and I'm assuming credibility weighted, believability rated is a function of their skill set, expertise, et cetera. Everybody has a different that's rating. That's right, and they all have different weightings. So at the end of the day, you say, I'm going to make a decision, okay, would you do this after the thoughtful disagreement? Would you do this? And you push a button on this iPad app that we developed, and um, and it'll show not only what the different people's th- votes were and how that vote tallied up, but it'll show a believability-weighted vote. So I'm going to assume that, that a straight yes-no vote often leads to a different result than the believability weighted vote well the yes no will get ta- tallied up with a weight of mm-hmm. yeses and nos and that that and so uh, so for me uh, like i'm running a meeting this is really what i wanted to have like, i run the company i could do any kind of decision making i want and but the reason i want the believability decision is if somebody knows more about a subject than i do or if i have three believable people disagreeing with me um and and uh, about something I don't want to uh, just walk off and do that thing because that would be pretty stupid. So what I think to myself is, okay, the right way to make that decision is believability weighted. And then when we come down to that, like if I'm thinking um, these people have that that view and I have another view, uh, I, uh, there's a high probability I'm wrong. I need to even delve into it. Why is that? that? And so by operating by this believability weighted decision making, um, it's fantastic. I will make better decisions. We make better decisions as a result of that. And also people feel uh, empowered and the ru- rules are fair. In other words, okay, at the end of the day. You know, just like in the United States, uh, we might believe that democracy is fair. In other words- One person, all, one vote. Uh, and... that, that, they might believe that. Um, I would believe in a company, everybody doesn't, it doesn't make sense to have one person, one right. vote because there's a difference. But to know that in a sense that you earn believability points in a variety of fair ways and that it gets carried through so that you're making your decision-making is a decision-making process that people can believe in. It means they don't have to bottle these things up, and it makes for better decisions. That's a pretty ego-free approach to managing a company. Well, this ego is a problem, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you basically, I mean, maybe the ego of, you know, being excited and doing great things and all of those types of things. So maybe it's not totally bad. But I mean, anytime that that ego is standing in the way of you're making a good decision, it's it's terrible. It's It's got to be controlled. You got to do something different. Otherwise, you stand in the way of making your good decision. Life is a matter of you know, of bets. Every day you're making a bunch of different bets. And think about it. It's the accumulated stack of chips that you accumulate from making all those life bets. Mm-hmm. So you don't want to have something that's going to stand in the way. If you were playing poker, if you were playing any game, you don't want to have the ego stand in the way of making smart decisions, right? Makes makes perfect sense to me. Let's talk a little bit about markets and the economy. In the book Principles, you describe Backtesting your trading intuition in order to develop a system for interest rates, stock, currency, and precious metals. Tell us how the idea of backtesting intuition developed and how you implemented that 
uh, over the early history of Bridgewater? Well, I, uh, every, I got in a habit of every time I would put on a trade, I would write down the criteria for putting on that trade. And I, when I would close out the trade, I'd read why did I do it and you know how did that go, just as a learning experience. And I found that if I wrote those criteria really clearly and I put them into equations or algorithms, I could then see how they would have performed in the past. Let me, let me interrupt you a brief second. From the beginning days of Bridgewater, from your earliest days as a trader, you were writing down, here are my trade criteria, here's why I expect this to work, and then you would do a postmortem saying, here's why this worked or here's why this didn't. Yeah, very, very early. Mm-hmm. As long as I can remember. And, and then that would be eventually reduced to an algorithm. Well, what I discovered, uh, I just did it to reflect on the trade, but I discovered that if I was clear enough, I could see how that decision rule would have worked in the past throughout history. And that was enlightening, right? Mm-hmm. Because um, then I could see, I could test it in all different countries. I can test it in all different markets. Wow, that was enlightening. And then I realized that if I could take that rule, that this algorithm, um, I could also have it process information on a real-time basis. So as information was coming in, it could go through the rule and then tell me, essentially, buy, sell, and do that. So I gained a perspective and I gained a tool that was fantastic for my decision-making. And it was it was so invaluable because the computer can do things that the mind can't. It can process a lot more information, a lot faster, a lot more precisely, and a lot less emotionally. And I, so I could build those strategies. So that's how I started to think about those decision rules. And then I found, um, and that was great. So I, I, I built these systems, these decision-making systems that would work like a GPS. Like if I'm driving in the car and the GPS says, turn right, turn left, using those my criteria, um, yeah, I could do that. Or I could say, no, I think I should turn right. It's like having a computer chess system next to you while you're playing chess, but with your criteria. And then the reconciliation of what the computer's saying with what I'm saying uh, then helped. Because sometimes if I would see it differently from the computer, then I would say, well, why would that be? Because those were my rules, so how do I, wh- wh- what's going on? And it could either be, two-thirds of the time, it was that the computer was seeing things that I just wasn't because my mind is limited in capacity to do it, but it would make sense when I would dig in. And then, let's say, one-third of the time, I was seeing something that I hadn't properly put into the system. And so by putting it into the system and evolving in that way, again, I'll emphasize, the writing down of principles, putting them in there, and then ideally encoding those principles into uh, computer to make that decision-making, um, you know, has been invaluable. And that's why well, that works so great with our investment decision-making um, that it became really important for our people decision-making, our management decision-making. In other words, for all decision-making, you can do this. It doesn't have to be just investment decision-making. And this is the thing I really, really want to pass along. Um, if you think that you're making decisions um, and you just sort of slow yourself down and you write those things down, it'll help you clarify them. And when the next time one of those comes along, you can refer to it 
And you could also share it with other people so that you say, ah, we understand each other, why we're doing that, and you can refine it. And then you can build on that nowadays with, um, and not just nowadays, we've been doing this for 25 years, you can build that on terms of that, uh, that systemized type of approach. And that's invaluable. Let's stay with the investment thesis for a second, because there's a, a quote from the book I have to share. There are anxious times in every investor's career when your expectations of what should be happening aren't aligned with what is happening, and you don't know if what you're looking at are great opportunities or catastrophic mistakes. Is this the sort of thing that the system helps you work your way through? Yes. I mean, I think you must know the feeling, like every investor, sure. right? You're there. I'm right. Everybody else is wrong. Well, and- but you don't know. You say, or am I missing something? <laughs> You know, because every day it ticks. You know, it's not like you buy and then you sell. It's that you're sitting with that position. Right. And every day it's doing this and somehow it's going the wrong way. And you really don't know, am I missing something or is the market just about to catch up? The system helps you, right? Because the system consists of that computer betting machine, right? It's like uh, that, that chess machine and so on. And you also have it down that you know I structure it so that no one bet is such a big thing. So you're placing large large numbers. And so you're executing it and you're looking at the reasons. So it helps you through, helps me through, those emotionally challenging periods because you learn to gain perspective. You know how bad it can go. That perspective is invaluable. So let's give a specific example of that fork in the road where it either could have been a catastrophe or an opportunity. I have to bring up in 2008, when most funds were down 30, 35%, your flagship fund was up 14%. And then fast forward to 2010, your returns for Pure Alpha 1 were plus 45%. Pure Alpha 2, which is a, a, a more modest portfolio, is plus 28%. And then the fairly conservative all-weather portfolio was up 18%. I'm looking at these as an example of that great opportunity versus great catastrophe. Would these returns have been possible without that process? No. Again, where they come from. You have to think differently. You have to think independently. You have to, and then you also have to know that you could be wrong, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, is 2008 going to be my 1982 all over again? Right. What, have, what did I do differently? So the things that I did differently accounted for why we could do that comfortably, you know? That element comfortably? of... Comfortably? Comf- like comf- much, much more comfortably. Much more comfortably could have been otherwise done. What sort of self-doubts were plaguing you in 08? Were you thinking, hey, this is 82 all over again? Did that enter your head? Yes, of course, right? Is that that experience? Am I going to be terribly wrong? Because here it is, I'm calculating that we can have a meltdown, that we can have that that whole exercise. But you had a very different system assisting you at that time. Right. I had something like 25 years more experience with that other memory in my mind of all of those other you know, lessons I learned in compensating ways and so on. And so I, so it would be like going into the hurricane 
the next time where the hurricane kicks the hell out of you the first time and then you build systems and things and you go through and you still say, ooh, is this scary hurricane and I hope I'm well enough protected. But that's what it was like, not knowing exactly, but having enough cautions and and diversifications and calculations and triangulations and so on, which girded essentially um, our uh, decision-making and going through that. So I referenced the all-weather portfolio. Let, let's talk about that a little bit. Um, essentially, you create the idea of risk parity earlier, and then from 1996 to 2003, um, you set up the all-weather portfolio where you're the only client. How did this scale up? What is it, $80 billion or something like that these yeah. days? How did that scale up from raise pocket money to a, a full institutional product? Well, I, you know, I, this was now the stage that I had money that uh, was going to be for my family beyond my, me. Mm-hmm. So I put together a trust and I had to think, um, I'm not going to be around to make tactical decisions. And you know, making money in the market, alpha is a zero-sum game. You don't know who's going to do it. What is the perpetual uh, excellent portfolio? What should that strategic asset allocation be, right? What is the mix of assets? And um, I knew how markets behaved in relationship to each other. Every market is the present value of expected future cash flows, discounted present value of those cash flows. And those factors are, the main drivers are inflation and growth. And uh, so um, I, I knew how one market would go up and another market would go down depending on the circumstances. Maybe we wouldn't know what those circumstances of the future would be, but we did know that they would move around depending on those circumstances. So I did know how to engineer for balance. And I knew that I could, um, that they have comparable, comparable risk assets are approximately comparably good. If you think about, let's say, stocks, and you compare them with bonds, what a stock is is a uh, leveraged equity, right? Because mm-hmm. the average company has a debt um, uh, ratio, debt-equity ratio of one-to-one. So it's leveraging that up. And the one thing I think that you know of investing, and this has been true throughout history, is that cash has to have a lower return, lower expected return than other asset classes because if it doesn't, the whole system implodes. Right. In other words, central banks put cash on deposit. People with better ideas come along and earn a higher return. If that doesn't work that way and they're all learning, earning lower returns, the whole thing implodes. So the notion is how to achieve that right balance, and that's what motivated me to, for myself, put um, you know most of my um, – money that I was passing along, structured that way. And I just, um, uh, you know, I told it to other clients, you know, here's how you do it. And um, then they wanted us to do it for them. <clears throat> and that's what we've been, uh, you know, doing since. We have been speaking with Ray Dalio. He is the founder and chief investment officer of Bridgewater Associates. He is also the author of the new New York Times bestseller, Principles. I strongly suggest you go out and read it. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and check out our podcast extras where we keep the tapes rolling and continue to talk about all things investing. Uh, Be sure and check out my daily column on BloombergView.com. You could follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. You are now tweeting, aren't you? Yeah. And your your Twitter handle is at Dalio, at Ray Dalio? At Ray Dalio. At Ray Dalio. Um, We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at... 
mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Welcome to the podcast. Ray, thank you so much for doing this. I have been looking forward to this for so long, um, and I'm really excited. I wish we had you for another two hours, because I have a million questions for you that we didn't get to. Um, there's a handful of things that, that I have to ask you before we get to our, our favorite questions, starting with, I'm sure I'm going to mangle this person's name, Wang Oishin's philosophy. Um, Wang Shishan. Wang Shishan. Okay. The unwise worry over nothing, the capable worry about the future, and heroes go for unattainable goals. Explain that philosophy, because I find that fascinating. Well, Wang Shishan is a very, very important man in China. Um, some would say the number two man in China. And, really? And, um, he uh, was an important shaper of the Chinese economy for the last <clears throat> 30 years or so, and then he was put in responsibility of uh, eliminating corruption in China. And um, he's a... a uh, very anyway, uh, quite a remarkable man, and um, and he always uh, see things at the higher level. Uh, you know, uh, the timeless and universal laws of uh, human nature, and and so on. So, when there are ever discussions with him, uh, you know, uh, they immediately rise to those higher la- levels and discuss. You know how does reality work, and how's it worked that way through time? So, um, you know that's uh, that's Wang Jishan. So, uh, there's, I, there's a sentence in the book that looks like it's derived from that philosophy, which is um, a hero. I'm going to paraphrase, and I'm going to give the exact quote. A hero is an ordinary person who has achieved something extraordinary something beyond the normal range of achievement. And I think the exact quote is, extraordinarily successful people are not successful because they are extraordinary. Is, is that related to yeah, that? Yeah. Uh, my son in 2014 gave me a book called Hero of a Thousand Faces. Um, Joseph Campbell. Joseph Campbell. Read the book. Great. Very, very famous book. Assigned in colleges now all over like highly, highly regarded right. explanation. And it's so interesting um, because uh, what it does is 
it characterizes a particular type of person who evolves to have a particular type of life. And when we say hero, um, like they said, it, it, it doesn't mean um, you know some unique particular person. It means that a person goes down a particular path and they achieve some extraordinary things and they get themselves in a position where others are more important to them than themselves. Mm-hmm. Okay, And there's a journey. And he ta- and you go through that journey, and he recounts that journey. It would take me too long here to recount the book, but you know, first you have a taste for adventure. You like adventure. You go out, and with those adventures, you have your successes and your failures, and you know your fights and so on. And you learn, and inevitably, uh, you have your crash, your big crash. He calls it um, the abyss or, or the belly of the whale experience, that big crash. Mm-hmm. And how that big crash, how you handle it, is the defining characteristic. The, um, in that big crash, um, some people have a metamorphosis. They change in important ways. Most importantly, they gain the fear of that crash. They gain wisdom and so on. And then they continue on. Some people get off the field. They have the big crash. They say, I don't want to do this anymore. And they don't have a metamorphosis. Or if they don't have a metamorphosis, they crash again and they keep crashing. And so once they start to learn those lessons, they begin to find out that they can be more and more successful. I know that happened to me. I crashed in 1982, changed my whole attitude about decision-making. It was my metamorphosis. And you go on and you play your game and you have your fights. And when you do this, and you do this with others, the others and the mission becomes more important to you than you in in and of itself. And you get to a later stage in life, and at that later stage in life, you want them to be successful. You have a bunch of uh, battles that you fought. Oh, you could do that again. You can be successful again. The rewards of being successful again is you know is not the same as the rewards of helping other people be successful. And so when he gave it to me, 2014, like uh, you know, I don't like I don't like public attention. I've stayed away from public attention. I don't like it. And then I'm thinking I've got this particular these principles that have helped me. And then I and I think okay. Should I return the boon? Because he describes the returning the boon. And returning the boon means sort of returning the thing, the gifts that you learned along the way to help others. And so, like, it, as you're asking, it's not that the success is not because of me. The success is not because of anybody as much as it is the principles that are learned along the way, the recipes that other people can have in order to make them successful. And so that was the, you know, that's the lesson. That's the timeless. So I gave um, Hero of a Thousand Faces to Wang Shishan because uh, he's a hero. He's a classic hero. And he's at a particular stage in his life. And I thought that that would be, uh, you know, helpful to him. And I do find it helpful to a lot of people. And a lot of people find it helpful and interesting perspective, which is why, as you say, it's being read all over. Right. In fact, the book has been described as the basis for... Every major piece of literature, film, it's just the classic narrative hero's journey, and uh, kudos to Campbell. Lucas really, and Star Wars right, based exactly, on it. And, <clears throat> right, exactly. So since let's talk a little bit about returning the boon. You've been exploring philanthropy <clears throat> as well as uh, you have a fascination with ocean exploration. How do you see the next phase of your life um, working in those areas, be it philanthropic, anything involving um, what you're doing now with well, oceans, 
Yeah, uh, the big picture, uh, you know, so three phases in one's life, I think. First phase is you're dependent on others and you're learning. You're a kid. Second phase, um, you're working. Others are dependent on you. You're trying to be successful. The transition from the second phase to the third phase is returning the boon, passing along what you learn so that others can be successful without you and you're free to live and free to die as they describe it. And that's absolutely right. So that's where, where, where I am. So now is in that the main thing about this other fr- phrase is everybody's good without me and I'm free of obligation and I can have fun. Now, where do I want to go have fun? I love the markets. I love the game. I will play the markets since I, I, until I die because that's a game I played all along. I love it. I'll continue to do that. That'll be my main activity that, and I'll continue to do that at Bridgewater. And as long as they find me useful, I'll continue to do that. Uh, and then, but I, there's all the other joys of life. Life is this giant smorgasbord of, of exciting things. And part of that, as you say, is philanthropy. In other words, um, you know, I came from nothing. I'll end up with nothing at the end of the day. And yet, so to think about who this could be used by for in important ways is fantastic, right? So that, that all, you know, then there's the approach of how do I do that? Um, you know, and well, you know, we do it as a family activity. Different people have to uh, find their passions. So different people have different passions. F- for me, one of the things that's <clears throat> passion uh, for me is is nature. I love nature. I learn from nature. It's a big thing, and I particularly um, uh, find the ocean to be unbelievable. Because think about it. Um, there's a there's a sheet that's the ocean uh, layer, and that basically uh, is about half of the world's surface. Above it, the highest point, uh, Everest, is equal to the greatest depth. So it's symmetrical, right? So there's a world under that sheet, um, except 72% of the world's surface is the ocean. So the ocean space is about twice as large as all the world that we know that's above the ocean, mm-hmm. and it hasn't explored, and it's unbelievably fascinating. It's unbelievably valuable in, in, in so many ways. So enabling ocean exploration and exploring to go down there with scientists and all of that, I've, I do find particularly enth- enthralling, and I like to contribute to to people doing that, so I find my ways of you know uh, uh, ways of doing that. Blue Planet is going to be coming out. Um, mm-hmm. Blue Planet Two, okay, it's going to come out soon. Um, what we did is we put scientists on it, and and with we have a exploration. I have an exploration ship. Put those scientists on it and let them then uh, do things and help to make people aware and bring them to that. That's one of the things. But we do different things. My wife is uh, particularly. Um, uh, affected by um, what wh- what are called um, disconnected and dis and disengaged youth, high school students right. in Connecticut. Unbelievable. Um, disconnected di- meaning they're either not going to school or not taking classes. That's right. So disengaged means they go to school but they're not really participating. They're you know just they don't study for tests. They don't try much. Uh, disconnected is they don't know where they are. Twenty two percent of the high school students in Connecticut are one of those. And 
That's the, what That's kind of futures number. are the, are, are they going to have? Where are they going to be? They're going to be on the streets and so on. And she relates very much to those in terms of that tragedy. So that's where her focus of activity is for philanthropy. And so um, and and so we have different focuses, but we share those things as activities. I share them. I have four sons. We share them as activities. That's been my approach, and that's been a thrill. You know, it, it's the right th- thing to do at my stage in my life. So I know I only have you for another seven or eight minutes. Let me get to some, at least a few of some of my favorite questions um, before we run out of time. Tell us the most important thing people don't know about your background. Um, that I'm, <clears throat> that I, um, you know, I have a very modest background and I have a very bad rope memory. Um, so I don't think I have much in the way of natural advantages that, that was I'm your just weakness learning by, yeah, yeah, that I, bad memory led you to writing things down is that the weakness led to the principles um i think to some extent it contributed to me writing them down hmm. yeah uh, i think it was a factor um it helped although it was other factors more than the clarity and so on um but yeah and i was a lousy student i i hated school mm-hmm. um got into uh you know uh, CW Post College on probation, you know. Um, so there's nothing. I, I think that's an important thing to know about a, a number of people. That um, a lot of people think that people at the top are just naturally special people, and that, you know it's easy for them, and and all. That, and that's not true. I've come to know the most powerful, most successful people in the world. And I could tell you they all struggle and they all have weaknesses. They just know how to struggle well and they learn along the way. Know how to struggle well and learn along the way. Okay, tell us about some of your early mentors. Who guided your career, um, if anyone? You, you know, uh, I, I, I didn't, not very much in terms of like mentors, particular mentors that I would go to. It's because of how I kind of learned. Um, which is I have to learn myself through experiences, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, so I mean, there are people I admire uh, uh, a lot. Um, I so I think that they had probably an influence to watch Paul Volcker. Let me let me to watch Paul Volcker since oh, through my lifetime um, since 1971 when he was the Undersecretary of the Treasury for Monetary Affairs all through the 80s and to watch him as a uh, highly respected peep person i look around me and i and i see people who i admire i'm i admire mike bloomberg i think mike bloomberg for example in building a business and dealing with government becoming a government official and a philanthropist has been extraordinarily effective in all of those different ways and it might not encourage him write down his principles his recipes for success because wouldn't we like to know those and so there are a lot of people you know in the markets paul tudor jones uh, a friend of mine and so I admire uh, him, and uh, not, I, I admire him in his character, and I admire, uh, you know, how he makes decisions, and we talk a lot about that. So, and I've had, you know, uh, many people, I don't want to name drop too much, but a lot of people in their own ways, seeing what they're like and interacting them, I think had an influence on, on me. I wouldn't say that I've had um, any classic mentors along the way. So you mentioned Joseph Campbell's Man of a Thousand Faces. What are some of your other favorite books? Well, um, two others uh, come to mind. Uh, 
A River from Eden, um, which is written by D- Richard Dawkins, mm-hmm. which is about evolution, okay? Evolution is the greatest force in the world, in the universe. And uh, man is a very small part of evolution. Mm-hmm. And to watch how evolution works, those are the universal laws of life that we then really have to deal with. Um, it's fascinating. It's a brief book. It's great. Another uh, uh, brief book and remarkable book is uh, Lessons of History, written by um, uh, Will Durant and his wife, I think it was Ariel Durant, who were the, one, probably the greatest historians that the United States has had. They've covered 5,000 years of history, 5,000 years uh, on written in 5,000 pages, and then they take and they created a book called Lessons of History, which is 104 pages. I like these high-power sh- short books, mm-hmm. um, and um, and it takes those themes through history and uh, you know sort of distills them down through their eyes. Very interesting. But you know, um, I don't know. There are a lot of interest. Too many, too many, too many interesting books to read, and not enough time. Not enough time, really. For sure. Um, if a millennial or a recent college graduate came to you and said they're looking for considering getting into finance, what sort of career advice might you give them? Well, um, first of all, know your nature. Know what your pulls are. Get Go to your pulls. Then expect your problems and your failures. Approach those well and with equanimity, mm-hmm. and then take those problems and that failures and diagnose them and evolve in that five-step process, I would say that. Uh, you will, and recognize that um, what you're going after will change and evolve as you evolve to higher levels. So, uh, you know, follow your passion. I would say, yeah, here's, here's maybe the simplest. Dreams plus embracing reality, knowing how it works well, and knowing how to deal with it, plus determination, so you do that over and over and over, will give you a successful life and a lot of evolution. And our final question, what is it that you know about the world of markets and economies and investing today that you wish you knew 40 years ago when you were first launching Bridgewater? Oh, well, so many things. I, I guess maybe the, the thing that I think is the most common mistake um, is that people think that investments that have done well are good investments rather than more expensive. And, in other words, that um, if it did well lately, they like it, okay? So that you, you, you have to be, you have to know what something is really worth and uh, I guess another thing um, that I, I learned that uh, is a, that um, every price, every day's price, is a function of buying and selling. And if you know who the buyers and the sellers are, and you know their quantities, and you know their motivations, it helps a lot more than the uh, theoretical uh, notion of what equilibrium values should be. Since we're talking about philanthropy, you set something up with Principles um, and Amazon.com. Go to principles.com slash giving and, and tell us what that leads to. 
for a number of years, I've given philanthropic people, charitable people, donations to their favorite charities mm-hmm. as a holiday gift. Uh, and that, well, that's because there's just so much wasteful giving. You know, you give them a sweater and whatever, and you right. have to wrestle with what are, the, are they going to give it. And this is really an appreciated gift. And most importantly, it gets converts a lot of waste into getting people who need it the most, the most amount of money. So uh, the amount of money that is given for giving candy in the holiday season is greater than the amount of money that goes for the American Heart Association wow. annual budgets of American Heart Association, American Cancer Society, and Habitat for Humanity combined. Wow. And and so I figure if I can pass that along, it's a great idea. A lot of people like it. So I'm suggesting it. And what I did for, for the book to help to explain that and also um, you know, pass it along, is that for everybody who buys the book, I'll donate $10 to their favorite charity. And I set it up in uh, through this link that you just referred Principles. to. Principles.com slash giving, is that right? Yeah. Okay. And uh, so every purchase of the book through Amazon, $10 goes to, they, they designate a charity and you donate the money to that charity. That's right. And it's so easy. So, you know, buy book, Go on. I think the, the website's got like a million two hundred thousand charities or whatever. So it's easy wow. to click in to get to the charity of your choice, and you and it just gets there, right? And so the uh, so I'm doing it not only because I you know appreciate this kind of giving and I appreciate the people who are operating that way, but I also uh, want, would like to get people to see how easy it is and get the idea coming along. So because I think if if we could tilt a little bit of holiday giving so people think it's a good idea, um, then it'll make a lot of difference. So that's what I'm doing. That's terrific. Thank you, Ray. This has been absolutely fascinating. We have been speaking with Ray Dalio of Bridgewater Associates. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you can see any of our other 170 or so such conversations. Uh, we love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank my crack staff who helped put together these conversations. Medina Parwana is my producer slash audio engineer. Taylor Riggs is our producer booker. Mike Batnick is our head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.